This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Many thanks to Patrick Maguire for looking after the place last week, but I'm back from my holidays. I'm not going to get into what I did while I was off, but I can assure you that it was unwise, but not illegal. Right, coming up on today's episode, we kickstart a brand new series. It's called The Exit Interviews. Already, one in 12 MPs have said they're going to stand down at the next election. So over the next few weeks, we're going to hear from some of them from across party and some who made the cabinet or backbenchers and talking about why they're quitting and some of the highs and lows the best and worst bosses and that sort of thing we kick off today with the former cabinet minister George Eustace really really fascinating chat about working with Dominic Cummings being David Cameron's press secretary arguing with Liz Truss when they were both in the cabinet so that's coming up in just a moment but as ever we kick off with the columnist panel The Columnists with Libby Rachie Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio and Rachel Sylvester is here in the studio. Hello, Rachel. Hi, nice Matt. Nice to see you. And Libby Post is here. Morning, Libby. Morning. Uh, now, uh, here's a question. Is it fair for asylum seekers to have to share rooms? Last week, about 40 asylum seekers were offered space in a Pimlico hotel, but they refused to enter it after being asked to sleep four people per room. Uh, it's caused a big row. This is the Immigration Minister, uh, Robert Jenwick, talked to the BBC about it yesterday. It's right that we get good value for money for the taxpayer. But I'm and so if single adult males mm-hmm. can share a room and it's uh, legal to do so, which will obviously depend on the size of uh, the accommodation, then we'll ask people to do that. And I think that's a completely fair and reasonable approach. But and, we're talking about and, the broader... I, I will never put the interests mm-hmm. of uh, migrants above those of the British public. Um, what do you think about this, Rachel? I mean, the thing I was quite surprised, I spent the weekend trying to find a hotel for three, three of us to stay in in Bristol. Couldn't find one. <laughs> so maybe Robert Jenner could help out with that. But what do you, what do you think? Is it, is it fair? Or is this just a sort of another row the government's quite happy to have because we can hear them being tough? I think that's true. But I think the, it's asking the wrong question here. I think the problem is that there's 170,000 people whose asylum applications haven't been processed. 130,000 have been waiting for six months or longer. So the system itself is broken. So if you end up not being able to get process people quickly enough, then you end up having to find hotels for them to live in, which is, it's, which is absurd. Uh, so 
given that that's the situation, as a short-term measure, I think it is legitimate to say that people could share. But the problem is they shouldn't be in the situation where they're having to be put up in hotels. So therefore, they shouldn't be having to share big picture. Uh, And I think the other dimension to this is that uh, I interviewed Andrew Mitchell, the International Development Minister, um, a few months ago, and he was pointing out that this all comes off his budget, that the international development budget is being raided by the Home Office. About 10% of it is going to the Home Office to pay for um, people to stay uh, this kind of accommodation for asylum seekers and that means money isn't going to Africa and all the countries that need it for genuine humanitarian crises but the the problem here is that the government's allowed a completely dysfunctional system to develop it's not whether people share rooms or not. But then I suppose it's that, that's the thing, that they're happy to have the row about the sharing of the rooms because it means we're not talking about well, how yeah, big the... We'll uh, get on and sort out the there. actual problem rather than having this row. What do you think, Libby? Well, I think Rachel said it all. I mean, <laughs> I, I would wish them all to have actual beds, certainly, but there is this incredible backlog. Um, I think it's a, it must be absolutely agonising not to be able to work, you know, to have made it over here and then not, not, not have any rights at all, not able to work, and then put in a, a room with, with three complete strangers. But I do wish we would work harder on the international European collaborations and ID cards here for work or rent. It would be a very small nuisance for existing citizens and it would be a huge pull reduction and nobody will talk about this in government. They're all just terrified that it'll be, oh, show me your papers, you know, fascist state and so on. But it need not be. But some form of identification, I mean, a number of people who, who say, oh, it's always easy, it's easy to work in England. We come to England because it's easy to work. We're not staying in France, you know, because we have, have identity. It's it's absurd that we don't look at this. Um, the the other thing, I mean, talking about the system uh, not working, this story by Matt Dathan in the Times today, illegal migration will have to fall dramatically to below 10,000 a year if Rishi Sunak's legislation to stop the boats is to be put into action. So this is the legislation which is it's in the House of Lords today. It's the one that Rishi Sunak's trumpeting in his speech in Kent. Uh, the illegal migration bill will give sweeping new powers to the government to automatically reject, detain and remove asylum seekers who arrive in the UK illegally. This is the send people to Rwanda. But uh, it needs the uh, 10,000 is the maximum number that Home Office officials believe the state can handle, which means they've got to cut the numbers by 80%. So they're basically introducing a law which their own officials say can't work and isn't going to work uh, in order to look tough for sort of political reasons. And I think there's another, it's back to your point about they want to have a row about this. I think they don't mind the fact that the House of Lords is going to uh, rip this to shreds and point out all the flaws and block aspects of it because then they can say oh you know liberal elite peers have blocked our draconian proposals you know it's always blaming somebody else uh, and I think uh, Rishi Sunak wants to be seen as competent he should deal with a, this in a sort of competent fashion rather than saber rattling. Um, and um, what do you think, Libby? Because there's a risk, I think, that they keep, they've, they're the ones who put the small boats up in lights. They've turned it into a massive issue. It turns out they're actually far from running away from it. Keir Starmer's quite happy, it seems, to fight on this turf. This, this whole thing might end up backfiring on them. They've, they've highlighted a massive problem. They don't really have a workable solution to it. And they might end up paying a price rather than, than reaping any, any sort of political benefit. 
I think they will, yes. I mean, the, the business of blaming, always blaming somebody else, finding somebody else to blame. Trevor Phillips has got a very good general column on that this morning, which takes us all the way from Schofield to Boris and beyond. Um, I, I think it's it's political sabre-rattling and it's going on on both sides at the moment. And uh, and there, there are there is just not enough concentration on the absolute practical thing of getting more officials, getting the backlog cleared, you know, getting the pull factor down, uh, working with Europe. Um, I, I, you know, we want action rather than, than this sort of grandstanding, which is what the bill seems at the moment to be all about. Yeah, and, and it, you know, it'll get bonged up at the House of Lords today and they'll make some changes and then they'll go back to the Commons and they'll have to row all over again. But yeah, it's extraordinary that story from Matt. I sometimes think that the Brexiteers spent so many years blaming the EU for everything. Now they haven't got the EU to blame, they have to blame everyone else. Yes, <laughs> the blob. The, it's all about the blob. The blob. Exactly. It's all about the blob. I mean, it's interesting. It's if all you, Gary Neville's fault. Uh, if you look at the polling on uh, which political party would be the best at handling asylum and immigration, uh, well, don't know's top, uh, according to YouGov, then Labour just ahead of the Conservatives. Uh, but that the toys have sort of picked up a bit, so actually maybe them banging away, they, you know, maybe they think they've, they've neutralised it as an issue without necessarily solving it. Uh, let's turn to another bit of the state which doesn't <laughs> seem to be working. <laughs> Universities. And we've talked a lot, um, uh, before I was off, we talked about how uh, the incredible story of students not getting their exams marked and not even getting degrees, which is incredible. Today, MPs are debating a petition calling for the creation of a statutory duty of care from universities towards students. It follows uh, estimates that around 100 university students commit suicide every year. And um, Libby, there's this big question about what is the relationship between universities and students? You know, they're paying a lot of money, but they don't seem to have any any rights as a consumer in the way that if you're buying a car, you'd expect a car at the end of it. Um, do you think this should go further? Should there be a statutory duty to look after the well-being of students as well? Well, if I may speak from the eons of the past, I went to university just after the age of majority was reduced to 18, and suddenly we were all considered to be adults. But there were still a lot of uh, colleges around and, and dons around and principals around who considered that they had a bit of a loco parentis um, yeah. sort of uh, responsibility for us. And, and this was actually quite, quite sort of reassuring. Uh, now what we have is 18-year-olds absolutely new to living away from home very often often, having been highly protected by, you know, DBS checks and everything under the Children Act right up to the age of 18, they're cast with financial worries onto a completely new world, and it's considered entirely their own business if they take drugs or drink too much or sleep with everybody uh, that they can find, uh, and uh, absolutely no sense that, the, that there's any loco parentis in it at all. And so now we get back to this situation of saying, well, it's very hard, you know, they're very unprotected, they're all alone universities have a duty of care well what are you going to do are you going to actually give more sort of powers and responsibilities adult responsibilities to universities or are we just going to be a bit more careful about the 18 year olds who, who are loosed into this whole new world you know which is really difficult for many of them who've never been away from home at all before and especially under the present sort of financial worries that they have and the cultural worries and, and the the social media worries that, that uh, they have you know it, it's it, it needs to be resolved but as I say it all really began when the loco yeah. parentis idea was dropped and actually probably the pandemic rate has made that worse because so many 
lectures taking place virtually. You know, there's less of yeah. that sort of day-to-day -day interaction. People are much more isolated. Yeah. So I think the universities do have a duty. And there's even sort of grey areas about whether they're allowed to ring the parents if they're worried about a student. But too often students just... Com completely left to their own devices and they do need support but actually I think the important thing is this needs to start much earlier right. in the education system so at the moment this kind of tick box exam focused system that we've got isn't creating resilient well-rounded children who are then ready for university so there needs to be much it's about sort of doing things like drama and sport, things that build relationship, build sort of mental resilience and character and strength at school as well. The school system should be creating children who are ready to withstand going off to university without need, the need for support. Um, and it just isn't. It's infantilising children. By You know, you have to sit in rows, remember the facts, that's yeah. it. That's what school's about. And actually, school should be about creating adults of the future. It's interesting, actually. When our eldest went from sort of GCSEs to A-levels, there was a big change at the sixth form where they said they wanted, you know, they, they wanted to be communicating much more with parents. The... the, the it, it, it was it was the opposite of what I expected. I thought sort of secondary school would be much more like you know constant drip drip information, and they said no, you, you have to be involved. I think the idea that you'd let sixteen and seventeen year olds, you know, loose mm -hmm. and it's all their own responsibility. They saw the value of sort of binding parents into knowing what was going on in that sort of communication, which which just wasn't what I, what I was expecting. Definitely isn't what I experienced. In fact, Paul Johnson, we'll speak to Paul. Well, we but go on, sorry, go on, Libby. I was just going to say, we had an experience of um, uh, one of ours, our, our son, our late son, who at university at one stage, he said to me, I've, I've decided that things don't connect to each other anymore. And I was worried about his state of mind. And because I happened to know a very nice tutor who, who was, I actually rang up and said, look, bothered about him. And the guy asked him to tea. Now, that's the kind of, you know, they're yeah. not supposed to tell you, but we told them and he asked him to tea. And in fact, it was fine at the time, you know, it all, it all settled down. But, you know, it, it's that, that degree of connection is something which universities are sort of told not to do. You know, they're told not to report to parents, yeah. not yeah. to speak to parents about someone looking a bit odd. We spoke to Simon Wesley, the psychiatrist for the Education Commission, and he said he'd been to one Cambridge college where half the children were having counselling, you yeah. know, and he said, the, but the problem is everything is being medicalised. So actually a cup of tea and a chat and social interaction may be a much better solution than either some kind of yeah. antidepressants or even counselling. But he says, you know, children would say to him, I can't come to your lecture, I'm feeling a bit bipolar today. And in fact, they're, they're kind of turning something that's being a bit sad or anxious into... To being a teenager. Um, uh, into yeah. a mental health crisis. Yeah. Um, which means, so, and actually the way of dealing with it, he says, was to give the sort of social structures and boundaries. Let's bring in Paul Johnson now from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Morning, Paul. Morning. Uh, Paul, you've been right here, really interested in column in the Times today, explaining that, uh, the way we tax people, uh, who, who benefits and, and who, are we really taxing the rich? Is it, is it Robin Hood taxing the rich to give to the poor? Yeah, so we normally think about that when we look at who gets um, welfare benefits and pensions and so on. And obviously, uh, particularly when it looks at when you look at welfare benefits, nearly all of that goes to people on the very lowest incomes, and most a lot of tax comes from high earners. So we usually quite rightly think of the government being very redistributive. But actually, most 
of what government does isn't just taking money from us and giving it straight back in benefits and so on. It's actually paying for stuff like the health service, which is by far the biggest thing government does, education, defence, police, all those sorts of things. Um, so it's actually quite interesting and important to know what's happened over the last um, you know, 30, 40 years in terms of where that money goes. And actually, that's become more redistributive over time. We're doing more of taking from the rich and giving to those on lower incomes through what we do on public services, partly because we send far more on the health service and actually poorer people tend to have much worse health. So a lot of that money goes to them. Uh, but also effectively, um, you, you know, when I was at university, 40, nearly 40 years ago, not that many people went to university and it was all paid for by the taxpayer. Um, nowadays, far more people stay on at school, far more people go to university uh, and you pay yourself. That comes through the student loan system. So look over that 40, 50 year period, the state's actually got a lot more redistributive than it used to be uh, through public services as well, actually, as what it does through the welfare system. And what about the, the, the so-called squeezed middle, Paul? Is there a point in the, are there a chunk of people in the middle who basically who get the rawest of deals? Well, to some extent, there's been a little bit of a move back to help them in the last you know, small number of years. When you look at the childcare changes in the budget, that's aimed at people who are in work. It's not actually aimed at the uh, at poorer uh, at poorer groups. Um, and uh, some of the changes um, that we're seeing in um, higher education actually are also uh, being the the um, the new system of student loans, which comes in this year. Uh, are actually going to help higher, somewhat higher earning graduates relative to yeah. lower earners. Uh, but people in the middle, I mean, you're, you're right to an extent at the moment that tax increases because they're happening through freezing personal allowances and thresholds. Those tax increases are hitting people on, on middle kinds of incomes. Rachel? Uh, hi, Paul. Uh, hi. I'm interested in, is this partly because inequality has actually got worse? So therefore, the state is having to sort of compensate more through these public services. And meanwhile, you've got sort of people with assets becoming richer and richer, yeah. if you like, property prices have gone up, etc. Is there an element of this, this is just an inevitable result of inequality growing? Well, I think it's, uh, it's it's partly to do with the fact that as we get richer, we want more of stuff like health. It's partly um, that, as you say, wealth inequality has grown in particular over the last 30 years. So the sort of those who own their own homes are further away from those who don't. Um, actually, income inequality since about 1990 hasn't changed very much. The, the very richest, the, those right at the top of the income distribution have moved away although even that stopped over the last decade or so the really big increases in inequality happened in the 1980s which is quite a long time ago now but i think this is partly just a reflection of changing sort of perceptions and needs in society but also changing inequality in in health and yeah. one of the things i think is most worrying about all this is that poorer people and less well-educated people their health is so much worse yeah. uh, than higher educated and better off people Paul, always good to speak to you. Fascinating column. Paul Johnson, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the exit interviews with George Eustace. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We've already said... Charles George Eustace is leaving us soon. A strawberry farmer turned UKIP candidate. He campaigned against the Euro with a young Dominic Cummings. You know, if you went on a mission with Dominic Cummings, there would always be quite a lot of casualties along the way. He then became press secretary to Michael Howard and David Cameron. Most of the other prime ministers we had after him, to be honest, if I saw them on television, I, I kind of used to fear for them. In 2010, he was elected as Conservative MP for his hometown seat of Camborne and Redruth. He became a farming minister in 2013, resigning in 2019 in protest to Theresa May's Brexit dithering. The sheer extent to which she allowed her government to just be buffeted about by events. He joined the Cabinet as Environment Secretary under Boris Johnson in 2020, where he often clashed with then-Trade Secretary Liz Truss. You always had that sense, if you're trying to explain something technical and complicated to her, that she just wasn't even listening. She was just thinking about what she was going to say next. <laughs> and now he's announced he will not stand again at the next election. In politics, the most difficult thing is you never understand until you get into it just how difficult it is to get anything done. George Eustace, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. So, why are you leaving? Well, I've loved my time in politics uh, and I've enjoyed, uh, well, not every moment of it, but most of it. Uh, it's been varied. I've had lots of different elements to my political career, but by the time of the next election, I will have done 25 years in total. Uh, the best part of uh, 10 years as an advisor and campaigner on the No campaign and working for David Cameron and Michael Howard, and then 15 years as an MP, nine years as a government minister, all in the same department. And I'll be 53, and I think I've got a chance to do something else in life, have a change and do something different. Unlike so many people in politics, you had a proper job before. You were a strawberry farmer. What's the secret to growing good strawberries? Well, growing strawberries is actually quite a nightmare to get right. Logistically, yeah. it's a huge problem. Uh, we used to employ about 300 people from about 15 different nationalities in those days. Even then, there was yeah. migrant labour. Uh, the locals used to call it the United Nations uh, on, on our farm. And it's just a, a very difficult logistical thing to get uh, strawberries from a field into a punnet, refrigerated properly on a lorry, uh, and then into a supermarket shelf without anything going wrong. And the weather is a, a big factor. It can affect demand. Orders collapse just when you need them to go up. Uh, you, sometimes you don't have enough labour when you need it. So it's a very uh, tricky thing uh, to manage and probably a quite a good grounding for <laughs> my time in politics. So let's talk about your time in politics then. Your first, we'll go through some of your, your various bosses in politics. Your first boss in politics was probably someone called Michael Holmes, who was the, apparently the leader of UKIP when you stood for the party in the 1999 European elections. Um, you lost that one. 
Do you ever think your political life might have been different if you'd won? You disappoint. You presumably you were disappointed then, but you look back now and think it might be the best thing that ever happened. I, I never expected to <laughs> to become an MEP. The moment I think I was at the bottom of the list, yeah. and um, I can remember I didn't stay in UKIP uh, long. I was in there long enough, really, to work out that it probably wasn't for me, and I uh, I left and joined the Conservatives soon after. And the reason for that is um, I can remember the selection for that one, and I gave um, you know quite a, a pitch to say that we were all we believed in um, in friendship with our European neighbours and uh, you know, we wanted friendship with the Danes and uh, helped to support them on their Euroscepticism as well and I gave quite a, uh, quite a pro-European pitch for someone who actually felt we should also leave uh, the EU but my point was that the nation states of Europe weren't the same as the European Union, that was my underlying message. Everybody else got up and said uh, this is the greatest threat to our country since the, the Luftwaffe or Napoleon uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, they went to the top of the list and I, I ended up at the bottom of the list. <laughs> you weren't too fu- you were you weren't scared enough about the, the threat posed by you? I think I tried to um, probably uh, have too much of a uh, you know too much of a clever argument about the difference between the nation states of Europe mm. and the European Union. Back then, if someone had said in 1999 that at some point you were going to leave the, we were actually going to leave the European Union, would you have believed them? I would have thought it possible, but but also unlikely, uh, and that's because you would have needed at least one of the main political parties to have adopted that as a position. But nobody really uh, serious was saying we should leave the EU. I mean, UKIP in 1999, that was the moment that they broke through into the public consciousness, and in that European election, actually did very well, and they you know they gradually built from that moment on, as did the issue. You went on to one, the No to the Euro campaign. Uh, you worked on the No to the AV campaign. You're obviously then part of uh, the Brexit campaign. Have you ever been on a campaign which you haven't won? Um, well, I don't think so, actually. It's a good point. <laughs> um, good yes, I, I've had a, a pretty good uh, try. I have been on some leadership campaigns that we didn't win. Um, <laughs> I, I won the first one when I was supporting David Cameron, but every other leadership campaign I've been on a losing side. But uh, I did in that first, the, the first real proper campaign, where I really cut my teeth, to be honest, was at Business for Sterling and the No campaign. And that's when I, uh, I worked with, uh, with Nick Herbert, who uh, was you know, a very good uh, campaigner. And also, it's where Dominic Cummings and I first worked together. We were the same age. We were both at that point in our late 20s. We cut our teeth uh, in the campaign against the Euro. So what's your assessment of Dominic Cummings? Is he a genius or a menace? I think he's got lots of talent, but he just cannot uh, cope with organisation structures. Uh, you know, I always remember when he left Business for Sterling to go to work in those days for Ian Duncan Smith. We used to call him um, Colonel Kurtz was his, is his nickname. And for anybody who you know, is uh, too young to remember it, in the film Apocalypse Now, which was a, um, a cult 1970s film, Colonel Kurtz was a brilliant tactician, uh, you know, a colonel in the US Army who had all sorts of ideas for more creative tactics uh, in Vietnam. Uh, all of which were ignored by the, the top brass. And he then eventually went um, uh, mad, was driven insane by the bureaucracy and the structure and, and ended up going down a river. And um, that was sort of summarised, really, uh, Dominic Cummings. He, he had moments of uh, brilliance, um, strategic brilliance. He, he would always shake things up. You know, if you went on a mission with Dominic Cummings, there would always be quite a lot of casualties along the way, but he would tend to, uh, to prevail and win in the end. But he can only really cope with things in short bursts and organisation structures boards, cabinet, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, a big part of politics is, is managing a lot of other people's egos and uh, trying to chart a way through that. After doing all that campaign, you, you became head of press of the Tories in opposition under Michael Howard when he asked the country, are you thinking what we're thinking? And they replied, 
No. I think actually, uh, you know, Michael Howard, um, he would have been a good prime minister in my view. I still genuinely think that. And he was a much more decent man than he's really given credit for. I, I remember once uh, getting on, a, you know, we were on a train station waiting to go to um, uh, Newcastle somewhere. You know, Michael Howard was uh, all the way on the train, distraught that be, we were rushed out by Rachel, Rachel Whetstone, his advisor, rushed out of the cafe and, and never left a tip for the, uh, for the waiter in this cafe who had given us coffee. And he agonised about this all the way up. He was a very decent man. And after um, every party conference uh, that's uh, you know, exhausting for those advisors, he used to send me a handwritten note thanking me for everything I'd done. And I think he would have been a good Prime Minister, but look, it wasn't to be, and we lost. And I can give you the result of our exit poll, which is this election has been won by Labour, but with a majority down from 160 to 66. So then you threw your lot with David Cameron, and you were his press secretary when he was leader of the opposition, which is when our paths first crossed. I think the first time I met you, you took me to his, David Cameron's house to do an interview. We did the interview in the car. The interview finished and the car pulled up at some traffic lights and you suggested I get out on a dual carriageway while you went off to get into a helicopter. Do you do that to all journalists? Abandon them on the side. Well, we, of, uh, we did quite often. Dual carriageway. <laughs> we did. We did quite often. Um, well, it makes me feel slightly better. I know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I know you've used this in your your stand-up act for, for several years, and I read it and I thought I'm not sure I even recall doing that, but I uh, but I have a vague recollection of that. We we did used to do the the pressure on the diary was so intense that we they used to do meetings and calls and interviews in the car. We probably needed to get you out of the car because he probably had some other delicate uh, conversations to do. I thought we dropped you actually at a tube station. No, in fact, um, I, ended up walking, I didn't know it was just in I ended the up middle walking of on nowhere. the King's Road trying to find a bus stop. <laughs> and I had to phone somebody in the office because it was pre-having maps on my phone. I didn't literally well, didn't know where I was. And I phoned somebody in the office and, who got out an A to Z and I, I shouted out street names until we worked out where I was. Well, let but me anyway, apologise. I never realised that it caused such uh, long-lasting uh, impact <laughs> on you. For, for to be honest, I've dined out on it. <laughs> I've died out, out for a long time. Um, and what about David Cameron? You know, tell us about what it's like when you're, you're crisscrossing the country with the leader of the opposition. Your David Cameron uh, always used to say that, um, you know, when I was joining him on the road, oh, oh this is going to be a, a disaster today because George is with <laughs> us. Because I wasn't good on the road. Liz Sugg, his, um, who was his yeah. events manager, was far better than me at making sure everything worked to time. <clears throat> I remember once getting out of the car with him and taking him down um, the wrong road to a, a place where he was giving a speech and all of the snappers and the media were at the wrong end of the other end and so it was all missed. It's a stressful time. I, I can remember once he had to do a speech somewhere in the North Midlands and in those days we tried to avoid using helicopters uh, like the plague because he had made such a big uh, thing of his green credentials but the only way he could vote in some legislation and get to this event was by helicopter. So we had planned for him to just land somewhere uh, you know, discreetly and for the local chairman to sort of pick him up, we assumed in a, a rover and quietly take him to the event and not make a big deal about it. Little did we know that uh, when a press officer <coughs> arrived there to, uh, to meet him, all of the world's media were there. Snappers, <laughs> the Daily Mirror were, were licking their chops because uh, the local chairman thought he knew better and had actually alerted the world's media that there would be an arrival <laughs> shot with David Cameron touching down in a helicopter. And worse than that, it also uh, decided that um, he had a friend with a Bentley and that <laughs> it would look quite prime ministerial for David Cameron to step out of a helicopter into a and step into a Bentley. And, and we had to scurry around, literally with 10 minutes to go, uh, radio to the, the helicopter and literally divert them to a 
a different field somewhere else in the locality <laughs> to avoid you know what would have been quite a spectacle and then you you step back from that job because you then decided to stand as an mp yourself in the uh 2010 election beating the the lib dem julia goldsworth in your home seat in camborne and red Ruth. how would it feel stepping back from being the local mp in your home your hometown it will be quite a wrench and you know my family have got roots there you say going back 400 years i remember i always made a big play of this in that first election that my family's been here for 400 years and the mebian kerno candidate which is the sort of cornish nationalists one of them said to me well some of us were here before the norman invasion <laughs> my family have been in the area a long time but it Not is quite, uh, right. it's got uh, norman roots eventually at some point so you were born into a farming family um you were, then became farming minister environment secretary if the conservatives lost the support of farmers the relationship doesn't seem that cozy at the moment I think it's been difficult and, and made worse by you know the body language that was coming from the government, particularly you know during the Liz Truss mm. episode. It just caused a lot of anxiety in multiple areas. So green NGOs who we had worked quite hard to get on board were suddenly you know quite alarmed by what they were hearing. You know, and farmers just felt that some of the trade deals that Liz Truss mm. did you know really you know let down their interests. And I you know I couldn't disagree with that. I fought very hard against some of those trade deals and fought to try and get you know better terms but i think the trade deals in particular have sent quite a bad signal to sections of british agriculture so the party's got to try and work you know to rekindle that trust and i think richie sunak recognizes that he's in a rural seat he is trying to build yeah. back those bridges with uh, with farmers isn't it sort of indicative of just how stuffed the conservatives are if you've even lost farmers well it, it's a difficult time for us and you know there is a cycle to things and we you know we will at the next election be trying to win the fifth election in a row i don't think that's ever been done you know in history but nothing's inevitable uh, in politics either and it is i think still quite possible that it could be more of a 1992 election come the day rather than a 97 because rishi sunak's doing all the right things there's no shortcuts you've just got to do the hard work of making the right judgments get the economy back in the right sort of shape and i think the difference between 97 and now is you know whereas tony blair and his operation really looked like a government in waiting i don't think that's the same uh for keir starmer i don't think he's got a broad enough team around him yet and i don't think they look like a government in waiting and doubts could set in come come the election let me take you back through george eustace as part of your your exit interview let me take you through your bosses your various uh, managers indeed that you've had and uh, just get a one word just sum them up in a word for us. Let's start with uh, David Cameron. Um, How would you sum up David Cameron in I a think word? He had good judgment. Good judgment. Very good. That'll be interesting to see if you can say the same about all of these. <laughs> Theresa May. Uh, timid. Timid. What do you mean by timid? I think she just was never able to take the difficult decisions really uh, on Brexit. She was dealt a very difficult hand because you know we ended up with a with a hung parliament. But actually, rather than trying to reach out across party boundaries to try to build a consensus as to how to deliver mm. Brexit. She just kept trying things that were obviously not going to get anywhere. My, my big frustration with her and the reason I resigned in the end was just the, the sheer extent to which she allowed her government to just be buffeted about by events. Well, let's move on to the next person who created a lot of events. Boris Johnson, in a word. Um, colourful. <laughs> and our Boris had strengths. Um, he had weaknesses too. And in a funny kind of way, some of his strengths 
were at the same time his weaknesses. So there would be a boldness uh, to Boris uh, at times, and he would you know, cut through the nonsense and get stuff done, and he'd have quite, quite strong intuitive instincts about things and would drive things over the line in a way that some other prime ministers yeah. would always be talked out of action and would end up a bit like Theresa May being so cautious and timid that nothing gets done. So that was his strength. But of course, you know, his tendency to throw caution to the wind is also invariably what uh, landed him in trouble. He was also incredibly loyal to people. So he would be very loyal to ministers who, you know, came under fire or attack for things. And that's, I think, quite a good trait in a prime minister, but perhaps sometimes too loyal. And so sometimes he would stand by people when, you know, it became quite indefensible and, and he would be tarnished by that. David Cameron, good judgment. Theresa May, timid. Boris Johnson, colourful. Liz Truss, in a word, it's broadcastable. Um, ideological. <laughs> and my biggest frustrations always with, with Liz Truss, most of our disagreements actually were on trade. Um, she had a very set ideological uh, view of the world. And you always had that sense, if you're trying to explain something technical and complicated to her, that she just wasn't even listening. She was just thinking about what she was going to say next. <laughs> and what she was going to say next invariably started with the words, I'm clear that. Uh, and then it would just be the, the, the standard ideological stance that she had. And I think that's quite a dangerous trait to have because prime ministers have got to be able to grasp detail and deal with complex um, issues. And they've got to bring certain nuances to policies and judgments that they make. Otherwise, it all comes unstuck. And I think just her, her inability really to listen to others and to, uh, to take on board that detail was, was her undoing. Do you think the British public will forgive the Conservative Party for inflicting Liz Truss on the country? I, I don't know. The, the jury is out on that. I think um, there will be some people for which the Liz Truss episode, that, that 45 days of chaos and the fact that the party could have done that, uh, well, you know, good... You know, there were good cabinet ministers who supported her you know, to try to get a, a role in cabinet and they should have known better really than to do that. But they, I think for a lot of the public they'll think that's a point of no return and that um, they will be done with the Conservatives at that, but not everyone. And so I think for a lot of others, uh, yes, that will have damaged the, uh, the reputation of the Conservatives mm. and people have put us, if you like, in the, in the doghouse for now and uh, we're on parole and they're waiting to see. But I think it is still possible that, yes, when they see um, Rishi Sunak get things right uh, and restore order, that they'll give him you know, the benefit of the doubt and recognise that he's, he's put things back together again. Well, let's finish the set then. Uh, Rishi Sunak in a word. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak is quite close to David Cameron and he's got good judgment. I mean, what I would say is what I really loved about David Cameron, and I was his press secretary, is that even if he was put in a difficult interview and asked something really left field about some obscure local issue by a regional journalist, like, and you, like you, <laughs> and you knew that he hadn't been briefed on it and it was some road yeah. scheme that he might not, he could always manage it and handle it and, uh, and carry it off even if he's asked something that took him by surprise. Yeah. And, you know, most of the other prime ministers we had after him, to be honest, if I saw them on television, I, I kind of used to fear for them. I, 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 I worried what they would say if they were asked something that they hadn't been told the answer to by someone in advance. And that really can't work. You know, there's a limit to what even a good press secretary can do. You, you've got to have somebody who's got a natural ability mm. uh, to do detail and to handle themselves well in a public environment. And I think Rishi Sunak has got that same sort of ability that I saw in David Cameron. Of all of them, though, because uh, of all the five, who was the best? 
Now that's asking because they're actually they've all got strengths. But I I <laughs> would say um, well they've all got different strengths and different <laughs> weaknesses. <clears throat> I think for what I've said you've got it, but I probably um, I probably because I invested so much of my time to try to get him there would um, would still be David Cameron, even though. It was very difficult for me because I went against him on the on, on the on the Brexit vote, and um, I don't know. I think he found it quite difficult to, uh, you know, to reconcile, you know, with that the, the fact that so many old friends actually ended up on the opposite side to him. I don't think he really saw that coming. Uh, given that you backed it and he didn't, he said it'd be a disaster. It would hit the economy. We'd spend years arguing <laughs> about it. There was the 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 upsides wouldn't be outweighed by the downsides. He was right, wasn't he? That Brexit has been a disaster I don't th- well I don't think so because I think there's one good thing we've got and I, and I know it's been there's been a lot of teething problems uh, that's for sure um, complicated as well by Covid in particular but also Ukraine and all those other supply chain issues but fundamentally we are a self-governing country again and, and I just don't think we were while we were in the EU I, I was in a department where 80% of the laws came from Brussels and most of my time was spent fretting about how we avoid infraction risks or penalties and fines from the European Union and the department was just rubber stamping and implementing EU law and it wasn't even possible for ministers to think creatively about what good policy would look like and that's changed and that's that's a positive. But people will be thinking well being a self-governing country the size of our own laws hasn't helped with the cost of living crisis it hasn't helped with the NHS it hasn't helped with the immigration we took back control of, of our borders and immigration's at, net, migration's at a record high. It's well, all very we can, well and good how it's self maybe Maybe it's the governing which is the bad thing, and that the, it's the Conservatives. Are well, I actually Brexit. genuinely think we should move on from saying this is all about Brexit yeah. uh, and start thinking, well, have we got this policy right or wrong? So if you look at trade policy, uh, I've been critical of uh, mm. the Australia trade deal. I think we could have done much better, but at least we're free to have a trade policy, whereas in the EU it was unlawful for you to have your own trade policy. You weren't allowed to do that. Um, you can argue about immigration policy. As it happens, I'm somebody who would be uh, have a more liberal approach on immigration. I would allow so-called tier three unskilled labour to come in on three-year visas. I, I think this skills-based immigration policy, uh, you know, it isn't actually working. We, we should have a needs-based policy where we allow in uh, people we need in the sectors where there are shortages. Like working on strawberry farms. In the food industry, yeah. strawberry farms, care homes, you know, the consequences of having labour shortages in these critical sectors is quite acute. And I would therefore have a needs-based approach to immigration rather than a skills-based approach. But that's a, you know, at least we can have that you argument. Sound, you sound more like Keir Starmer than Rishi Sunak. Well, I think at least we can have that, that argument yeah. and we should have that debate. And that's what it should be like as a self-governing country. Yeah. You won't get everything right. And when you make mistakes, you're able to put it right and correct it. Whereas in the EU, you never even had that right. And that's a positive. I mean, coming back to David Cameron, he was never an enthusiast for the, for the EU. Um, you know, he and Oliver Letwin were sometimes referred to as secret outers uh, in that they, they didn't, you know, they weren't passionate about the European Union. I just think the difference between them and me is he, he felt, and, and probably was right about this, that it would just be quite a hassle trying to leave and it would be difficult and complicated and, the, um, and would take years to unpick. And, you know, he was proved right on that one. And I, suppose, I mean, I always thought that was the strongest argument, the, the massive faff the lost opportunity, the fact that all parliaments debated for years and years was the process of getting out rather than reforming schools or hospitals or the environment or whatever it might be. And we'll never get back those lost years, will we? No, and they were tedious years. Um, the, 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 the parliament of 2017 to 2019 in particular, yeah. a hung parliament, 
you know, the deal between us and the DUP to try to keep the show on the road, government losing votes left, right and centre um, all the time, the parliament hijacking the order paper, um, it, was, it was an absolute you know, nightmare to try to deal with that. And I really think Parliament failed to rise to the challenge. And a lot of people, you know, kind of went off the rails. I mean, there are a lot of MPs who, you know, went a, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, I think, you know, mad would be the wrong word, but close to it, you know, through the, you know, the, 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 the difficulties of that time. And many of them chucked the towel in and quit yeah. politics in 2019. What's been the best part of your job as your time as an MP? Well, I think as an MP, uh, rather than a minister, there's nothing more satisfying than when you manage to get an outcome for an individual constituent that's got uh, problems. And so I've, I've helped people who, whose house had you know, partly fallen down, <coughs> mine shafts and uh, drainage holes and they couldn't get insurance and we've intervened and managed to, to sort those problems out for them. I've had uh, you know, people um, who had real problems getting the, the right benefit support or the right housing and we've, we've helped get their lives back on track. And there, there are thousands of cases like that where we've just helped people in their everyday life and it's really satisfying when you can do that and then as a minister you know really I've got three flagship uh, uh, bills or acts of parliament now and the Fisheries Act the Agriculture Act and the Environment Act I was closely involved in designing all three of those. When you were Environment Secretary were you responsible for plastic straws? Uh, yes, I was. Could you um, not have written a law which meant that paper straws had to be thick enough? Thick enough. To finish your job? I have thought the same myself. <laughs> and sometimes the paper straws uh, aren't good enough to pierce a carton in, no. the, old, uh, in the old way. No, I think that I'm law sure, needs revisiting. I'm sure they will in <laughs> uh, It was actually done, I was in the department at the yeah. time, it was done during the uh, tenure of uh, Michael Gove. Of it was course. something that we were pushing forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of progress has been made yeah. on some of those new, you know, new restrictions yeah. on plastics. Would you recommend it to a friend? Yeah, I would. And I've absolutely no regrets about it. And I think I've been quite fortunate in that I've seen it from lots of different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw opposition. I was involved in a campaign group. I was press secretary to David Cameron when he was on his way to, to Downing Street. And yeah, that was an incredible uh, thing to be part of. Uh, very hard work, but an incredible thing to be part of. And I've you know, been, been through politics and you know, left you know, several acts of parliament to my name. So yes, it's very varied. You can't get bored. There's different issues. If you get bored of an issue, then you can champion a different one. Uh, you learn something new every week because people bring all sorts of obscure, uh, <laughs> difficult problems to you. And even now, you know, new problems come my way on things that I haven't encountered before. So it's very varied, very rewarding uh, when, you, when you get an outcome. Uh, and it's got lots of frustrations, but I think every job has its yeah. fair dose of frustrations. And in politics, the most difficult thing is you never understand until you get into it just how difficult it is to get anything done. You know, you think when you're a candidate that when you're an MP, you'll be able to get things done. And then when you're an MP, you still can't get much done. You can do debates and you can push things and push amendments, but you hope that when you're a minister, you'll get things done. And then you still actually really struggle to get things done. And <laughs> it's only really when you become a Secretary of State that you can really start to drive stuff over the line. But even then, it's very frustrating. You have to have arguments with cabinet colleagues to get things done. Who did you have the biggest argument with? At Liz Truss, without a shadow of doubt. But we regularly also had arguments with um, the Home Office in particular over immigration policy. Final question then, George Eustace, in your exit interview. As you leave us, what will you do next? 
Um, I don't know. I'm taking a leap of faith, uh, but I've always done that. Uh, you know, I, I left David Cameron's office without really knowing what I was doing next, except <laughs> apart from thinking I'd like to try for a seat. And I left the no campaign not knowing whether I'd get a, another job in politics, and I managed to work for Michael Howard. And this time, my aim really would be to try and work in agri-food or agri-tech. I've got nine years' experience mm. in that sector through the government department that I was in. I developed quite a lot of technical knowledge in those sectors over that time, and I'd quite like to stay involved uh, in, in that industry. So that would be my aim. But for now, I've still got another year plus to do of this role and uh, obviously got plenty to be getting on with. Well, George Eustace, Conservative MP, thanks very much for, for joining us for your exit interview. Thank you. interview on the podcast next week don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes but for now for me matt jolly is goodbye this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport find out more at lutonrising.org.uk planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.